Wonderful. I'll be reading from uh, NESV, and um, so if you're reading from NIV or any other translation, uh, feel free to uh, try and make sense of what I'm actually saying. Um, what I'll be doing to say, uh, I can give you a, a bit of a bit of help. Um, I won't be reading the entire uh, text in in sort of one one chunk or one one go. I'll be breaking it down into uh, about four sections, and so um, I'll pause and we'll jump in and I'll extrapolate on certain things. And so, um, but we're going to go through the whole chapter itself, if that makes sense. Right. So picking up in verse one of chapter thirteen. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and wine, oh, bread and water, pardon me, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. The first point I want to pick up on is, uh, is what Nehemiah is communicating here about um, Ammonites and, and Moabites in the assembly of God. Um, I want to talk about his holiness. God is a holy God. To try and uh, even sit here and, and describe any, uh, in any quality just how holy, how separate, how otherly our God is almost reaches the point of futility. He is so unlike his creation in his distinctiveness and holiness for me to try and compare uh, any holiness we might have to his would, would be for me to try and compare uh, between us up here in the mountains, uh, about a thousand uh, metres above sea level and those in Sydney, and can try and compare relative to who is closer to the sun. He is so distinct and so holy. And that's a point that needs to be addressed here because this is going to set the background for why he is saying that no Ammonite or no Moabite, or in other words, no people of the nations, no pagans, no unbelievers, uh, may enter the assembly of God or may be in their presence. We see that because of his own character, God's people are called to likewise be holy. It was the case in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, it's the case now under the New Covenant. His chosen people, those whom he has called by his spirit and by his, spirit and by his will, are called to be distinct. They are called to not be of the world, in the world, but not of the world. We are called to be separated from the world unto him. And so we see here in this particular time that the people of Israel had, had not done that. It's not talking about, uh, say, an Ammonite who, was, uh, who had come to faith in, in Yahweh, who had turned from his own culture and, and believed in the one true God. It's not talking about those kind of people. It's talking about people residing in Judah uh, and worse yet in Jerusalem itself, um, the city on a hill, that were bringing paganism and, and idolatry and their own worldview into, into the midst of God. And that's unacceptable before him. And so the principle that needs to be derived here is, well, what, what are we as, as Christians 2,000 years after uh, the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord and roughly 2,400 years after this time period that's talking about, what, how can that potentially apply to us? And I believe that for us to be a holy people means to be consciously and cognitively aiming to separate ourselves from the things of the world, separate ourselves from sin that, that, that comes forth from our own flesh 
and from sin that resides around us. We live in a, in, in a, in a culture in this 21st century that, uh, that knows, you know, knows its own sin no more than a fish knows water. Is so laden, so immersed and so engrossed in, in ways that are so ungodly that it's, it's almost indescribable. And we as, as Christians, we as lights in the darkness are called to be just that. Lights in the darkness. There is a, an element of, of, of righteousness that, that God brings forth in us that should shine forth on their corruption and on the corruption of the culture. People should be able to look at us and go, there is something different about that man. There is something different about that woman. Why do you pray for people at your workplace? Why do you, you know, why did you go over and feed that homeless man that we walked by on our lunch break? Why do you do these things? Why do I see you reading your Bible in, uh, you know, at recess at school or another, a plethora of other analogies I could draw? There ought to be an element of distinctness and separateness that marks us as his people. Not to condemn the world and not in this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, Waco, Texas, Quakers kind of, let's go in a commune and hide for the rest of our life. But there is an element that we as the temple of God, a concept which I'll, I'll touch on in a minute, needs to be just that, it needs to be the temple of God, something that shines forth upon the other people as separate, as godly. Now, a question might be asked sort of, well, what, what, why is there such a, a need for holiness? If we bring it back to a personal level, uh, why, is, why do I need to be holy? What, is there, what danger lies in, in you know, sort of being unnoticeable from the rest of culture? Well, I mean, Paul, for example, tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33 that bad company corrupts good morals. And, I mean, I've personally experienced that. I know that w- when I did come to faith, you know, all, I, didn't, I didn't think I had really any Christian friends. All of my friends were non-Christians. Now, I don't abandon them as friends, but it is very hard for me to, to spend long, long amounts of time around them. It's hard for me to spend long amounts of time around people who uh, want to get just flat out wasted on alcohol, who want to smoke more marijuana than a Californian, and um, I say that either apologetically or otherwise. All right. And more importantly than that, people who want to, you know, blaspheme the name of my God and who want to lead me astray from Him. It's hard for me to spend a lot of time around those people. I don't say that, uh, you know, with a spirit of of bitterness or a spirit of condemnation, but it is reality. Do you know what I mean? And so for us, we find ourselves in a position where our company affects who we are. It affects how we grow as people of God and it affects how we live for him, whether we see that or not. Another reason I'd, I'd, I'd bring forth is because God also commanded in Second Corinthians uh, through Paul, in, in, particularly in chapter, uh, chapter 6, um, you know, he, 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 Paul proclaims, what, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does the believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. Ultimately, 
in some cases, I know I've had to in cases, I've had to choose between, uh, you know, my own holiness, God-derived holiness, and my friendships. And, and I'm sure that's been the case for, for many of you. And if it hasn't yet, it will be. But we need to understand that we are a holy people. We are people chosen by God for his purposes in this world. We are called by him into this fellowship and into this community which is unlike anything else the world has ever seen. And, and when you are part of a fellowship of the Holy God, you yourself are called to be holy. And so I encourage you in that to, to think about your own personal holiness, not as a, not as a you know, some pharisaical self-righteousness, but in terms of devotion to God. That makes sense? Moving on from verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tires of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, which is roughly about... Um, uh, four, uh, 433 BC, um, if you happen to care. Um, in the 32nd chapter of the uh, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered uh, the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the, ha- out of, uh, out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and I brought back there the vessels of, of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. We see, uh, if you backtrack to the sort of verse 4, 5, 6, um, Eliashib the priest, um, his name's come up. It's most likely not Eliashib the high priest, but another priest who happened to be called Eliashib. Um, but if you might recall who Tobiah is, he is uh, the governor of one of the surrounding nations who, uh, who sort of consults with Sambalat to, uh, you know, to bring this sort of quasi-meeting before Nehemiah in order to, to lead him into sin. Um, this, is the kind of, this is the people we're talking about here. But an interesting thing is that when, when Eliashib had done this evil deed uh, on behalf of Tobiah, where, where were all the Levites? Where had they gone? They'd fled, it says. It says here in, uh, where are we? It says here in verse, uh, in verse 10, uh, Levites and singers who did the work each had fled to his field. They'd run. They got scared. 
either by the confrontation or by some threat or some description, but they would throw it nonetheless. We're called, um, if, I'm, if I may sort of connect this to a New Testament passage, uh, we're called in, in Jeremiah, uh, sorry, in James, pardon me, uh, 4.7, um, this. You're called to submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We as Christians are called to engage on a daily basis in hand-to-hand combat with, if I might not bring too much praise, uh, the most powerful creature that God ever created. One who, 24 hours of a day, 7 days of a week, for 365 days of the year, seeks to destroy you and destroy your family. That, he, is who we're called to, to resist. Not in our own power, but in the power of God. For as we know, we as Christians, is not, is not we who live, but it is Christ in us who lives. There is a distinct command to resist the devil. Resist him, and he will flee. He's not afraid of you, nor is he afraid of I, but he is afraid of the one who is in us. But an interesting thing uh, that comes with that is, is sort of the first part of that, of that verse 7 there. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. One can uh, attempt to resist the devil all they want. One can attempt to uh, you know, overcome their own fleshly desires, which I'd argue are even more powerful than the devil himself. But that won't happen unless we submit ourselves to God. Unless we submit ourselves to his will for our lives to his commands, to his statutes. That is, the, that is the precursor. That's why it's put there first before resist the devil and he will flee from you. And so we see here in this verses 14, oh sorry, 4 to 14, what, what did the people of God do, specifically the Levites? They abandoned ship. They abandoned ship. They left the post. Did they resist the devil? No. Why weren't they able to resist the devil? The, the, you know, the enemy and the works of his through a life given to buyer because they didn't submit themselves to God. They had a duty. They had a command to, to take care of these matters and take care of uh, you know, the frankincense and, and the grain offerings and the, wa- the wine and the oil and, and etc. in the storehouses. And they abandoned that post. They abandoned it. And so for us today as Christians... We can't abandon our post. We can't jump overboard. We, we can know rather confidently that if we submit ourselves to the word of God and to the will of God and the call on our lives, he is a faithful God who will deliver us. He is a God who will lead us through the fire and out the other side. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did uh, in Daniel chapter three, they did not submit to Nebuchadnezzar and the powers of Babylon. They submitted to the Lord their God, and they respectfully declined the king's uh, commands to bow down before his uh, golden statue. He didn't say they wouldn't go through the fire. They didn't get spared from the fire. But who was the fourth one in there with them? one with the face of a son of man, as uh, son of God, as, as Nebuchadnezzar describes it. 
we're called to submit ourselves to God. Touching on this holiness thing which we which we talked about earlier. Submit ourselves to God. We don't have to fear some scheme of uh, of the devil or, or, or his works through other people. There's no need to fear that. And consequently there's no need to run. There's no need to abandon the post, so to speak. For as I said earlier, greater is he who is in us than greater is he in the world. And so remember that when uh, when evil is either worked against you or, uh, or when you find yourself in its midst, don't run. Don't run. We need not carry away. As culture slides off into oblivion, if I may daringly say so, we need not uh, embark with it on that journey. We can stand firm and resolute on the statutes of God and on his, on his truths. And so I encourage us to do that. Uh, a potential sort of application that uh, you know, I, w- I would give to that is, well, how, how, how is it that if, uh, say, I'm being uh, tempted, I'll put it slightly individually first, if I'm being tempted uh, in isolation, which is arguably the most dangerous scenario we can find ourselves, um, you know, what can I do? How can I uh, resist the enemy and resist my own flesh? Well, for starters, um, it all comes back to, to a perspective matter. If our, um, I, I think personally, from at least from my experience, if if our immediate um, if our immediate priority is I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, whatever you're being tempted with, uh, a number of times you'll find yourself failing. Because the focus uh, is do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, whatever this particular thing you're being tempted with. Um, I'm not saying we don't understand that we should not do something. But I think if we find ourselves in a moment of temptation, or even in a season of temptation, to rather look unto Christ unto his majesty, unto his holiness, unto his power and unto the verity of his salvation that he wrought for us, that provides us with the greatest perspective we could possibly have. If I am trying to resist temptation out of, uh, I don't know, out, out, of a, out of a fear of being exposed in a church meeting or something and having other people find out that I've done something, I think that motive falls short and that it is weak and that there is sinking sand. But I find rather strongly that if our motive is rather to bring praise and glory and honour in our lives unto the one who gave it all for us and who saved our souls, then that is more than enough to, to help us resist the devil, to resist our own flesh. That comes through prayer. It comes through um, I know some people like to quote scripture in such moments, um, which is a good idea, um, as long as we obey that scripture. Um, and such things come through knowing the word of God. Amen? Wonderful. Um, right. From verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads, 
which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you, have, that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. I wonder why. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. The scenario which the people of Judah find themselves in uh, at this particular time is, uh, is in direct uh, rebellion against the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. So, I mean, what, what specifically though was, was, was the problem? They were bringing in uh, you know, goods and, and different wares into the city on the Sabbath. They were working on the Sabbath. It's the first thing they were doing wrong. They were commanded to rest, just as the Lord God rests on the seventh day. And then secondly, they were, they, uh, the work that they were doing was, was for their own you know, selfish ambition. It was, it, was, it was to make some moolah, it was to make some money. And so they were not only just disobeying God, but they were, uh, you know, they were serving Ammon. They were serving the people of the nations and their kind of, um, you know, how they want to conduct their commerce on such a day that, that God had designated as holy. In one sense, um, I want to draw it back to sort of to us and how we relate to Jerusalem. In one sense, we uh, we are like Jerusalem, the, the city. We, as as Christians, those who are born again believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, are the temple of God, as I described earlier. We are the temple. We are the residing place of of the Spirit of God. And then, and then, furthermore, to that, uh, you know, we are called to be. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden, just as Jerusalem was a city set on a hill uh, that could not be hidden. And so, we as people need to to guard our hearts diligently, lest evil invade us rather subtly. Now, why do I say that? I say that because this this evil that was that was occurring was rather subtle. People thought they were doing fine. They thought they were doing good. Economically, it was it was it was a good idea. Um, you know, socially, even people were able to uh, you know to commune around food as a result of actually getting it. And uh, you know, from an outward appearance, it was it was a it was a, a noble thing. It was a good thing because it was helping people out. Um, but you might notice that 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 Nehemiah comes verbally at least so strongly against this. He says, "What evil have you done?" What evil 
in profaning the Sabbath day. Evil. Nehemiah, uh, if you haven't picked up in our series, is one who likes to call a spade a spade. He's a straight shooter. He calls it like it is. And they were conducting evil in their sight. We as, we as Christians need to guard our heart against subtle infiltration, so to speak, of evil. Evil uh, that, that springs forth from our flesh or from uh, works of the devil or by those around us. It doesn't come in this blindingly obvious, sometimes it does come in a blindingly obvious and stark contrast to the word of God. Um, but I feel we're, we're readily able to, to notice that because of how obvious it is. Um, but to give him the least amount of credit, uh, the devil is cunning. He's intelligent. And he knows exactly what your heart desires, what my heart desires, what our flesh craves, and he knows how to feed it. And I say that lightly. And I put myself in that same, same camp. And so, undoubtful practices, if I might refer to it as those, um, can spring forth upon us quicker than we will ever realise if we don't guard our hearts diligently, if we don't remain faithful to the word of God, if we don't remain honouring and intimate with Christ in prayer, and if we don't separate ourselves as holy unto him, it can enter you very subtly. I just want to make that distinction is it's not going to be a, a stark, really obvious thing sometimes. I mean, that's why, you know, uh, Christian ministers, you, you sort of might think about, I'm not just picking someone in gener, like generically here, but, um, you know, you might sit and think, how could, how could a pastor of a church for 20 odd years, you know, have an affair with a church secretary? How could a guy who's been faithful to his wife for 40 years do that? How? How could he cheat the church out of finance or something? And it's because over time, he has not, allowed, he has not protected his heart, he has not guarded his soul diligently, and he has fallen by the wayside. Uh, sin clamped down on him, and he fell. And so that is why we as, as, you know, we as Christians need to be aware of that reality. Not that we might be scared, as I said earlier, not at all. Um, or not so, so that we could find out a place to flee, like I said we shouldn't do before. But so that we may diligently guard our hearts to protect ourselves from the subtle attacks that come forth from us and from around us. An application, if I might give you one, is... Uh, specifically about what was you know, talked about with the Levites here in, in verse 22, uh, comes to us from Romans 12, um, uh, where Paul uh, beseeches um, the people of Rome, obviously, but as well as ourselves, that by the mercy of God we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. 
if we offer ourselves and our lives and every, uh, you know, every uttermost part of our being to devotion to him so that we may be holy and acceptable before him, then no subtle sin will, will well forth in you. God is a God who is faithful to his people. He's a good shepherd who protects his flock. And he is a faithful husband who guards the heart of his bride. And so if we offer ourselves fully, if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength, to the best of our ability you know, in this body, then we will find that such subtle sin will not well forth from within us. And he's faithful and just to protect us in such ways. From verse 23, we're nearly at the end. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? The, this sort of line of rhetorical question has a, has a rather obvious answer. The answer is no. Now, um, I'm not going to touch on this, on this subject in, in great depth. It will be, it will be in brevity. Um, because even this kind of topic is sort of a sermon or even a mini-series by itself, I don't know. But this issue of uh, intermarrying with the nations in the Old Testament and for us today, marriage with non-believers, if I might say, is one of the clearest, the most obvious answers to a question that we find in the Bible. I'll say that again. It is one of the most clearest topics in the Bible. The answer to whether, and I'm speaking to all people and maybe specifically to younger people or single people, but the answer to the question of can a Christian marry a non-Christian, the answer for you know, every second of the day is no. Now why? Why is it because, um, you know, what, what kind of reason is there for not doing that? Well, as I said earlier, um, when I was reading from 2 Corinthians uh, 6 on what Paul says about separation and holiness from the people, what fellowship has light with darkness? The rhetorical question, the answer is none. What agreement does Christ have with Belial, with the devil? The answer is none. The answer is none. We are called to not be unequally yoked. And there's a very, very 
clear thing. The, the imagery of yoke is with two ox carrying the yoke. If one is, is one, one is off, one is like half the weight of the other or it hasn't got anything in it, then you've got this imbalance, a complete imbalance. And no longer are the ox working together, they're actually working against each other actually to just stand up. It doesn't work. And the same thing applies to people then as it applies to people now. Marriage and, and relationship with, uh, as Christians for us with, with people who are not of Christ, who don't serve and follow him but rather serve their own desires, does not work. And it won't work. No matter what we, no matter what we say, we might say, oh, but they're so close. They're not, I don't know, they're not as spiritual as, as, as I'd like them to be or something like that. Um, and honestly, I don't, I'm not trying to say this to be harsh to anyone in particular. I don't know what your status is in that kind of area of life. But the principle still stands. I'm just simply telling you what the passage has spoken. We are not called to be unequally yoked with non-believers. And God takes that very seriously. He takes it very seriously. That was one of the primary things that sent Israel into exile. It's what sent them to Babylon, was marriage with foreign women. They bring in their beliefs. They bring in their, their idols that they fashion in their own image. And they corrupt the temple of God. And the same occurs with us. If we bring a, a non-believer into such an intimate quarter of our being, it corrupts the temple of God. And I say that to be honest with you and to not try and leave you with any illusion that it's somehow okay with him. And I wouldn't want you to think that, that, you know, that he'll bless that sin. I say it not as condemnation, I say it rather as, as you know, to point you towards the truth on the matter. But we are called to not be unequally yoked. And I think especially for you know, other single people in this congregation like myself, this is a really, really important thing which we have to come to grips with, especially considering, uh, you know, culture's concept of what love is. Con- you know, they acquire the idea of what constitutes a real marriage, let alone the love in that marriage. It's a very, it's a very contrasting thing. The biblical definition of love and the biblical definition of marriage and, and those kind of topics. Okay, and. I don't want to talk too much more about that because, like I said, it's, it's a sermon in its own. It's a sermon series in its own. Um, but, I mean, if you have any other questions about that, um, you know, I'm free and available and more than willing to discuss those kind of things with you afterwards. Is that okay? All right. So, to conclude what we've sort of been looking at tonight, we've seen that, um, that we are called to be a holy people, a, a, a people separated from sin and from the culture of the world, the... Uh, the spirit of the age, the, the, the unto Christos numos. We are called to be separated unto, unto God for his purposes only and for his glory. We're also seeing that, that we're called to not abandon our post. That because we are a chosen people separated unto God, we are not called to, to run or to flee evil. We're called to confront it. As he commanded Joshua to stay strong and courageous to resist the devil and he will flee all the while holding on to, to the steadfast faithfulness of Jesus in us 
And then we're also called to not be unequally yoked, as I've just discussed. I do pray that, that you'll take these things to heart, honestly. There's a lot of good content um, in this particular passage, and I pray, and it is my earnest prayer, and it will, be continued, uh, it will continue to be my earnest prayer, that you will remain faithful to him, and that God will remain faithful to you. It is also my earnest prayer that, that he will bring forth good fruit in you, and that you don't feel that you need to uh, you know, have some r- religious merit to be classed as holy, but because God has made you holy, you therefore have the power to be holy. I pray that he will bless you and he will keep you, now and forever. Amen.